Iwo Jima, Guadalcanal, the Battle of Britain, the Battle of the Bulge, D-Day. As you know, those were major battles that were fought in World War II between the Axis and the Allies. And beyond those, there were more engagements and skirmishes than could even be numbered. And even those, though all those, wars, all those battles were fought in different places, in different times, in different circumstances, they were all part of one war, one large conflict that was taking place all over the world. Many of us have heard about the plagues in Egypt before. Uh, many of us, when we were young children, remember seeing through a, a children's Bible or through the Sunday school notebooks, frogs too many to count and gnats and rivers turned to blood and our, our, our minds were blown when we thought about what happened in Egypt. But did you know that this was part of a war? This was part of a war that Woody and I have been talking about off and on for the past three or four months, ever since we've been studying the book of Exodus. This is a war that we are introduced to in the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 3, in the garden. When God was pronouncing curses upon the serpent, he said to Satan, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between her seed and your seed. He will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. And so these chapters in Exodus 7 through 10, it's the largest battle so far in human history in this warfare. And there are a few things that I want us to think about this morning to remember. First of all, this battle is still going on. We are engaged in a war. The battle rages now. And the war is not so much with our culture or political ideologies or governments, although it can express itself in those ways. It's a spiritual warfare that we are engaged in. A spiritual warfare between principalities and powers, spiritual forces. It's a war between God and his people and and God's people and the world, the flesh and the devil. It's a war between sin and sometimes it's a war that we have even within ourselves. And as we think through this passage, we have to remember that we're, we're engaged in a spiritual war now, and there are a couple things that we need to remember. First of all, one of the clear messages of Exodus 7 through 10 is this, Yahweh, I am who I am, the Lord, He is God, He is King, He's in control. He's the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. He remembers His covenant. He keeps His promises. That's one of the first things that we need to remember, that God is God. We also need to remember that we are engaged in this battle. And throughout the Bible, we're reminded and encouraged to be watchful, to be sober, to be prayerful, to be diligent, because we're engaged in this spiritual war. We can't be lulled to sleep. It's so easy to be lulled to sleep by the day-to-day details of life. But 1 Peter 5.8 reminds us, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith. So there are a few things that we can learn from the plagues in Egypt. The first thing we see is the power of idolatry. The power 
of idolatry. Idolatry is not a word that we use very often. We hear the word idol and many of us think of ancient religions and people worshiping things that were carved from stone or wood. But the more time you spend around Christianity, the more you study the Bible, you realize that idolatry is complex and intricate. It's possible for us to pursue idols, to live for idols, to worship idols that are not made of wood or stone. In fact, idols can be concepts. They can be people, power, control, comfort, escape. Really, the sky is the limit. And an idol is something that we, we look to for that ultimate satisfaction, that ultimate joy, that ultimate fulfillment before God or instead of God in our lives. And you may be thinking to yourself, okay, preacher, thanks, Josh. Uh, We're talking about the plagues in Egypt. Why are you talking about idolatry? Well, here's why. Pharaoh is, for us, a case study in the power of idolatry. He's a case study in the power of idolatry. His life is a progressive example of the devastating, corrupting, deceitful nature of idolatry in this world. And here is the scary part. His main idol was himself. His main idol was himself. He believed the lie that he was all-powerful, that he could do anything he wanted, and, and however he wanted it, whenever he wanted to do it. And he exalted himself above Moses and Aaron and the Hebrews and ultimately above God himself. And one of the things that we know from life and we know from the Bible is that that just doesn't work. It doesn't last. It doesn't make sense. We see the power of idolatry unfold in several ways. First of all, idolatry hardens our hearts. Idolatry hardens our hearts. We talked about this some last week, but one of the recurring themes of this section in the book of Exodus is the idea of the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. Over 13 times in three chapters, the idea or concept of the hardness of Pharaoh's heart is mentioned. Pharaoh hardens his own heart. God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh's heart is hardened. And at each step of the battle, with each of the plagues that God brought upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians, Pharaoh's heart became harder and harder and harder. He was committed at all costs, no matter what, no matter what the outward evidence, he was committed to his own way, his own plan, his own self-reliance. Even though, step by step, Yahweh, the Lord, showed him that he is the king of heaven and earth. But Pharaoh wanted his way and his agenda and his plans no matter what. Idolatry hardens our hearts. When folks live for sin and self, when they place their wants and their desires and their power and their comfort above everyone else and everything else, their hearts become hard or calloused or unresponsive to the plain and simple realities that are right there in front of us. We learn about this more in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, we read that therefore God gave them over to the lust of their hearts. So part of the power of idolatry and the the heart-hardening nature of idolatry happens when we live for sin, we follow after idols, 
And one of the things that God does is he removes his hand of restraint from us. And I think that's one of the things that happens here in Exodus. God hardened Pharaoh's heart, but that doesn't even appear until the sixth plague. Pharaoh was hardening his own heart. He was on the path toward destruction. That's what we see unfold here. And even in the face of God's power, even in the face of Pharaoh saying at times, I've sinned, Moses, go and talk to the Lord for me. But once the initial circumstances kind of relented a little bit, Moses went, uh, Pharaoh went back to his old ways because he worshipped and served the creation rather than the creator. Idolatry hardens our hearts. Idolatry unchecked also leads to destruction. And we don't have to go very far down this road, step by step, stage by stage, battle by battle, he, his land, his people are devastated. That is Pharaoh's. We've seen it throughout history. We've seen cases of people who are committed to their way of life even though everything is falling apart. We've maybe seen it in loved ones and it's broken our hearts. We've probably seen glimpses of it in our own lives when we've been so committed to something and it hurts ourselves and it hurts others, idolatry unchecked leads to destruction. We see it in Pharaoh and the Egyptians. But another thing that we can, we can learn from this is, is this. Idolatry identified can lead to life. Now we don't see it play out in Exodus 7-10. through 10. We see... Pharaoh going down at all costs the road of destruction. But in God's kindness and in God's mercy, as we look through the rest of the Bible, we know that identifying and recognizing our own idolatry, our own sin, our own destructive patterns, being honest about us even being blind and filled with pride, that can be the beginning of new life and hope and healing in Jesus Christ. If by God's grace we see our idols and turn from them to Christ in faith and repentance, God will heal us and God will forgive us. And it will take time. And it will be a long road. It usually means that we talk to other people and we bring them into our lives and we say, I need help, I need accountability to deal with these idols that I'm fighting in my life. We have to relearn how to live, how to cope, how to walk and think, not leaning on those idols in our lives, but leaning and trusting in God. I uh, had a student of mine when I did RUF at Delta State who was on the golf team. And uh, Matt, we played golf one day, and I said, you know, can you just give me some pointers about my golf game? And so we got to the end of the round. I said, so what do you think? And he said, you need to go and buy this book by Ben Hogan called How to Play the Game of Golf. And uh, that was his kind of nice way of saying, your golf swing is so broken and so messed up that it, you have to, we have to rebuild it from the ground up. And when we, when we see the idols in our lives, sometimes the whole way that we think and live needs to be rebuilt. It needs to be reshaped 
for us to lean on God and not lean on those things that we rely on to make us happy or fulfilled. Retraining our hearts and minds and our bodies by the grace of Christ to functionally lean on Him. Here's the thing, though. Worshiping idols feels good. Having and getting more stuff feels good. Escaping reality through addiction feels good. Trying to control everyone and everything in our lives feels good. Living as if we're the center of the universe feels good. Fulfilling or giving in to our sexual desires feels good for a while. Then things turn ugly, don't they? We've known it, we've seen it in others, we've seen it in ourselves. Then we can't get enough stuff to fill the hurt in our souls. And we can't numb the pain enough to escape reality. And the bitterness and the resentment start to eat us up from the inside out. And we're overwhelmed with anxiety when we realize that we're really not in control in our lives. And we feel shame and guilt because of sexual sin. And then we remember, oh wait, I'm not the center of the universe. That is actually a beautiful place to be. Where the grace and kindness of God in Jesus Christ can come in and make us new and make us whole and make us the men and the women that God intended for us to be. Idolatry is powerful. It's very real. And, listen, and the grace of God is greater. God's way of peace is better. Jesus' yoke is easy and His burden is light. And us being confronted with our idols is an invitation by God for us to find our hope and our life and our joy in Jesus Christ. So as we think about these these plagues and we see Pharaoh's life basically unravel, we see the power of idolatry it hardens our hearts. It's destructive if it's played out to the, to the end, but it's also an opportunity for us to turn to Jesus and find life. The second thing I want us to see this morning is the purpose of the plagues. As this battle unfolds, as we look back at what happened in the plagues, one thing becomes very clear. These were not accidents. These were not random things. They weren't lucky or unlucky. Every part serves a purpose. Over and over in these verses we read, so that, so that, that implies meaning and purpose and result. These are the reasons why these things happened. There's a purpose in the plagues. First thing is that you may know. We see it play out over and over. This theme is repeated in chapters 7 through 10, as the plagues unfold, as they roll out, the blood, the frog, the gnats, the flies, the death of livestock, boils, hail, locusts, darkness, there is a purpose in it all. That Pharaoh may know that I am the Lord. That's one of the purposes. That Pharaoh may know that I am the Lord, that the earth is the Lord's. Did you know that each one of these plagues is actually a standoff between Yahweh 
and one of the gods of Egypt. Between the power of Pharaoh and the power of the Lord God. And in each one, God demonstrates, he shows his power and his control. That he's the one true and living God. And the first two plagues, the the magicians, the priests of Moses, they were able to replicate them. And there is power in the powers of darkness. But soon, as the stakes go up, these magicians, these, these priests of Egypt were outmatched. And in fact, they say at one point to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. We have to remember that God's power is still seen and known in this world, even among those who claim that they don't believe him or deny his existence. One of the things that the the plagues do, the purpose of the plagues is to show us, to show Pharaoh that I am the Lord. Another purpose of the plagues is that the people of God may know that I am the Lord. Chapter 10, verse 2 says this, that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them that you may know that I am the Lord. The point wasn't just that Pharaoh would know, but that that God's people would know that God was for them, that he hadn't forgotten them, that he remembered his covenant promises that he made to Abraham, their father, that he would judge those who mistreated him. Part of the purpose of the plagues and the exodus was for God's people to know that God had their back, that he was for them. So they could tell their children and their grandchildren the awesome deeds of God. Think about all the situations in your life, throughout your life, where you've seen and experienced and known and felt or read things that remind you that the Lord, He is God. He is real. He is powerful. He's in this world working. He loves me. He trusts me. He's faithful. That's part of the purpose of these plagues, was to demonstrate to the people of God so they might know that I am the Lord. Another purpose of the plagues is so that I might show That I might know, that they may know, but that I might show. It's closely connected to Pharaoh and God's people knowing that he is the Lord. But another purpose, an even bigger one, is that God would demonstrate his power and his might and his glory to them and to the whole world. We display, we show off the things that are important to us. You know, you go to any high school and there's usually a a big glass case of all the the trophies that the the sports teams have won. If you go into one another's homes, you often see pictures of family that are precious to us. Maybe your favorite piece of art is near the front of the house so everyone can see it. And we've all heard little kids tell their friends or other adults, that's my mommy, that's my daddy, filled with pride. Because they love and care for that person. The plagues and the exodus and every part of God's redemptive work, including the manger and the cross and the empty tomb, they all point 
to the fact that God is our King and our Savior and our Hero. He rules and reigns sovereignly in this world. All of this section, all of the Bible is an invitation for us to say, look, there He is. This is what He has done. He is awesome and powerful and mighty and wonderful. This is God. This is our God. Part of the purpose of the plagues is so that His might might be displayed throughout the world and throughout the generations. Another purpose of the plagues is demonstrated here. It's mentioned in the first few verses. It's mentioned over and over again that they may serve. It's a recurring theme in Exodus. God tells Pharaoh, let my people go. Why? That they may serve me. And it's, an, it's another expression of power. The people were slaves in Egypt. They served Pharaoh. What God was doing was saying, look, they're my people. I'm their king. They serve me. One of the purposes of the plagues is that they may serve. And you know that service to the Lord is not slavery, but it's freedom. You know that, right? Service to the Lord is not slavery, but it's freedom. It's part of God's good, good plan for us that we believe the gospel message. That we are forgiven and accepted because of Jesus Christ. Why? So we can live for ourselves? So we can t- continue in slavery? So we can continue in sin? No, it's so that we can serve Him and honor Him and live for Him with our lives. That's at the heart of the Ten Commandments. It's not, here are these rules. If you keep them perfectly, I'll love you. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. And the commandments unfold out of that. We've been set free so we can live for and serve Jesus Christ our Lord and our Savior. We've been delivered so we can love God and love other people, do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with our God, to care for the lost and the forgotten and the poor and the outcast and the widow and the orphan, to move toward our neighbors and our families and even our enemies with the love of Jesus Christ and the hope of the gospel. We've been delivered. We've been set free so that the light of Christ can shine through us. We've been blessed by God so we can be a blessing to the nations. That's one of the purposes. So that they might serve me. What are the areas in your life where you tend to forget that you've been loved and forgiven by God so that you can serve God and serve others? Is it with your time? Or your money, or your thoughts, or your attitudes, or your bodies. We've been blessed to be a blessing. We've been saved to serve our King. We've been delivered to delight in God's law. So that they might serve me. The last part, purpose of the plagues, I think, is that we might grow. 
And this is more implied than, it, it, than it explicit. Uh, but we see it in Moses. One of the things you see, if you go home this afternoon and you read Exodus 7 through 10, you see Moses growing. You see him and Aaron changing. They're finding their voice. They're finding their feet. They're standing up to Pharaoh in ways that we thought were never possible. In fact, as this narrative unfolds, there are times when Moses tells Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the the world, what he's going to do and how he's going to do it. How does God grow us? How does God change us? How does it happen? Well, it often happens as we learn to lean on God through challenging situations in our lives. When we're called to do things that we think are absolutely impossible and we can't do. God often grows us through the challenges and the difficulties and the hardships. And it's not the way that we would plan it. It's not the way that we would have written it up in the playbook. It's not the path of least resistance. But so many times God grows us and forms us into His image through the difficulties that we face. What's the the phrase... Something like this, a calm sea doesn't make a skilled sailor. Oftentimes, God pushes us and stretches us and grows us as we walk through difficult, challenging, and overwhelming situations. What are the situations in your life that make you want to run for the hills? What are the situations in your life that make you want to pull the covers over your head and stay in bed all day long? Could those be the situations, the very things that God is using to shape you into the image of Jesus Christ, to grow us more and more into His image? So how do we wrap up our discussion of a passage like this? Well, we remember where we started. That's how we end. We remember where we started, that we're engaged in a war, in a battle. And what is one of the most important, most powerful things in a war? Intelligence. Information. If you know about your enemy, if you know their tactics, their movements, their plans, it can make all the difference. Intelligence can make all the difference. And this morning... We are armed with some incredible intel about the warfare that we are engaged in. It's this. In Christ, because of Jesus Christ and what he's done, we know the outcome of the war. The outcome is settled. The victory is secure. And we can look back with the knowledge that God promised that He would send His Savior even thousands of years before He came. We can look back and know that Jesus came at just the right time, in the fullness of time, that He was born in a manger to a teenage unwed mother in the town of Bethlehem. And and He grew in wisdom and stature before God and men. And that He loved and He preached and He healed and He worked miracles and He turned the brokenness of this world right side up again. We have the intelligence, the info that He never did anything wrong. 
And that even though he was God in the flesh, the perfect embodiment of grace and truth, he was unjustly tried, he was mocked, he was ridiculed, he was beaten, he was punched, he was stripped naked, he was whipped, he was crucified on a cross by himself. Think about it like this. All of the punishment of the plagues in Egypt, all the suffering, the darkness, the misery, the death of the firstborn, all of that was experienced by Jesus Christ. In Jesus, for us. So you have this this great mystery, the greatest injustice in the history of the world, the only truly innocent man who ever lived, was crucified. And we have the knowledge that it served to bring the greatest salvation, the greatest gift, the greatest hope and joy that the world has ever seen. Eternal life for folks just like us. We know about the empty tomb. We know about the victory over Satan and sin and death, we know that in Christ our outcome is certain. Brothers and sisters, take courage. Take heart. Yes, we're still engaged in a war, and it is life and death, and we're called to fight for our lives and for the lives of others. We're called to turn from our idols and lean into the loving arms of Jesus Christ. That that we might know Him and serve Him and grow in Him. And if you're here this morning and you have questions about the Christian faith, you have questions about what it means to follow Jesus, trust in Him, rest in Him, there's nowhere else to go. It's Woody said it already. Nowhere else to go. You have the words of eternal life. I've read, I think it's in a, a book by Charles Spurgeon about a preacher that went to get his shoes shined. And the, the man that was shining his shoes was, was a young man. He was probably an uneducated man. He had his Bible open as he was shining the, the preacher's shoes. And it was open to the book of Revelation. And the uh, preacher, you know, thought to himself, I bet he doesn't even understand what he's reading. And so he asked the man, what are you reading? He said, I'm reading the book of Revelation. And he said, kind of self-righteously, well, do you know what it means? And the man looked up to him with a huge smile on his face and he said, yes, Jesus wins and we win with him. Let's pray.